Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from August 22nd from Pastor Andy, titled, Seven Churches of Revelation, the Church at Ephesus. All right, so we are going to begin looking at the first part of Revelation for the next few Sundays, and I'll explain why later on. But first, let me say this. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to give us charts and maps to be able to map out the end of the world. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to inspire the Left Behind series. The purpose of the book of Revelation is for us to be inspired to glorify our triune God. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to bring an unshakable hope to a persecuted church. The purpose of the book of Revelation is for Jesus to encourage us by telling us exactly what he expects of the church. Now, how does this get accomplished? How is all that done in the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation tries to accomplish all this one way, and that's by showing us the greatness of our God and that he is worthy of our worship forever. Here's what we read in, in chapter 1. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That's what the Revelation seeks to do. It seeks to accomplish these things by realizing that we have a, a Lord, a Savior, who's worthy of our worship forever and ever. Let us look next at probably one of the most comprehensive pictures of Jesus we see in Scripture. In chapter 1, verse 12, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it were fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. And he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. There's a picture of Jesus, clothed in power and majesty and awe and terror, with eyes that see everything, with feet, as we see in Revelation, that can trample out the nations. With the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to, to speak the truth and whatever he says gets accomplished. Do you see this picture? This is your God, Grandview Baptist Church. This is your Savior. This is your Lord. Don't give me some wimpy picture of Jesus with more European features than Jewish features, with hair like a shampoo model. He's beyond terrifying. So much so that when he comes again, men are going to go to the mountains and cry out for the mountains to fall upon him and just kill them. That's terror. So much so that the book also tells us there are thousands of flaming creatures 
around his throne to give him praise and to give him worship, to do his will, to do his bidding. And if just one of them was in our presence, we'd all just fall out. We'd just be like dead people, just fall out dead. All of the universe is to declare the glory of God. People don't come up to Alaska and look at all the beauty and go, wow, man, it's phenomenal. People don't look at Northern Lights and go, am I something or what? Because all the universe declares God's glory. Every bit of it. And if we could just get a grasp, just understand who he is, get, get an idea of his presence and how he is over everything. If, if we were able to, to, to get focus on the truth that's all about him and get that center to our lives, it would revolutionize our lives, completely change it. But see, that's something that's difficult to do because we want to center our lives to be us. God will let you have a part of this part over here and maybe a little bit of this, but we want our lives to center around us. And so when God doesn't do what we think he should do, we get mad at him. But if we could just come to the, to the knowledge, if, if we could come understand and, and, and realize how it's not about us at all. But here's what we do. We'll read books called Your Best Life Now. Our greatest need is not our best life now. Our greatest need is to realize the greatness of God now. Because when you get down to it, God does not owe us a good life. He does not owe us happiness. He doesn't even owe us an answer. The only thing He owes us is judgment, His wrath for making light of His glory and thinking life is about us. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to hear that? So, here's what I want you to understand. Christianity is strong or weak, dependent upon our concept of Christ. And our concept of Christ is not real good right now. In other words, if we don't realize how big God is, we don't realize how great of a God we have, a few things happen. There's a lot of things. I want to name two things that, that happen when we lose sight of how big our God is. The first one is this, worship suffers. See, worship happens when we realize how big God is, how little we are, and how Jesus fills that gap. That just sort of fuels worship. We realize how big God is, how little we are, and how Jesus filled that gap. That's when worship explodes. And worship is a privilege. But oftentimes when we come to give God worship, what do we do? We may be, you know, looking at our phones or doing texts or, or playing a game or thinking about food or play or whatever else. If we're going to trivialize the glory of our God, we might as well just shut the doors and stay home. We'd probably be better off doing that. So when we don't understand how big God is, our worship suffers. The second thing that happens, we lose sight on how big God is, we tend to want to put God in a box. A lot of times we have the boxes that we put God in. Sometimes we're handing those boxes by our family or our church or our denomination. Boxes, when we put, we'll try to put God in a box. That just leads to anxiety. It leads to fear. It leads to legalism. 
hypocrisy, so many things. And some people will try to put God in the box labeled, I'm not significant. I'm too broken for God to use me. God cannot ever use me after what I've done. Or all these other boxes. We, we don't need a bigger box to put God in. We need to get rid of the box. Completely get rid of the box. And we need to realize that he's worthy of our worship no matter what happens in our lives and no matter if we can figure him out or not, he's still worthy of our worship. Here's the thing. In the book of Revelation... Our problem is not explaining millennialism. Our problem is pessimism, if that's a word. If we understand that Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter what officials get elected. We can have a hope no matter who gets elected. If we understand him as being Lord as he is, then we can have a, a purpose no matter what laws get passed, and we can have convictions no matter what Congress says, or the courts say, or anything else. Here's the thing I want you to realize. If we act like Jesus will be in charge someday, but he's not now, then we're a little more than atheists. What the church needs is not another program. What the church needs is an understanding of who God is and what He expects of us. That's why we're going through Revelation. To understand who our God is and what He expects of us, His church. Because there's one thing about Revelation. You look at the beginning of it, it's, this is it right here. It's all about the church. Here's what we read in, in chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, who on, on a scroll, saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose, whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. And then down to verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The first picture we get of Jesus is he's among his churches. The lampstands are his churches. He's among them. He, of course he is. He gave his life for the church. He loves the church. He's not an absentee landlord. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's all about the church. Now, five things, as we start looking at these letters, there are five things that all these letters have in common, all these, all these seven letters have in common. Okay? The first one is this. Jesus begins each of these letters the same way. I know. In other words, he knows what's going on in his church. He knows what's going on in the hallways, in the Bible study class. He knows what's going on. He's aware of what's happening in the church. Do you understand that Jesus is in the house right now? Because he knows what's going on in his church. There's a guy named Joe. His last name, don't remember. It's not significant anyway. But he flies for, he travels a lot for his job. And so he's always on the airplane. And he's on this one flight. And he notices right away the flight attendants. They're so different on his flight. 
They're engaged. They're enthusiastic like he's never seen before. And so halfway through the flight, he just pulls the flight attendant over and, and says, ma'am, I fly a lot, but I know it's the flight attendants on this flight. They're so service-oriented. They're, 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 they're right on top of things. They're, they're so engaged with, with all the people. And he just goes on names, all these things they're doing. And, and she goes, just sort of nonchalant, she goes, well, you can thank the lady in 12A for that because she's head of all the flight attendants for this airline's. When you know the boss is in the house, that should change the way that you act. So tell me this. Would people get an idea by looking at you the last 30 minutes that you realize Jesus is in the house? Because that's the first thing he wants all these churches to, to understand. He knows what's going on in them. He knows what's happening. Because this is his church. He's the head. This is his body that he gave his life for. His bride, it has all his attention. The second thing, okay, let's read these scriptures. There's a phrase in common in all these scriptures. These are seven scriptures, these seven churches. Let anyone who, hear, who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is at the end of the, his letter to Ephesus. Next one. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers, I will never be harmed by, will, will, not, never, will never be harmed by the second death. Next church. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. The next one, I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Next one, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life. Let's go on to the next one. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Let's go to the next one. I will write on the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down. That's, sorry, that's the continuation of the last verse. Let's go to the next one. To the one who conquers, I will give to the, the right to sit with me on my throne. Did you get an idea of what is going on in the, one, the thing he emphasized over and over again? To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes. Now follow me here because this is going to be deep. If you're going to be a conqueror or an overcomer, do you agree with me? You have to have something to conquer or overcome. Okay? We're going to have issues. We're going to come up against things in life. There are going to be things that come to us. We are expected. God expects us to be a conqueror, to be an overcomer when those things come into our life. Not just to play a victim. Not just to say it's not my responsibility. Not just to say, well, that's just the way I am. When they come, he expects us to be an overcomer. He expects us to conquer it. That's what he expects of his church. So here's the thing. Jesus is calling his church to be overcomers. That's what he wants us to do. All right, third. Third thing we see in all these churches. We have a description of Christ in chapter 1, and we read part of that. And parts of that description are applied to each church that needs to realize that certain characteristic about Jesus. For example, verse 16, 
He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, when he's writing to Ephesus, he says this, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's part of that same description. The, the loveless church need to realize that Jesus was among them and he, des- and he deserved their affection. Look at this in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. The living one, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forevermore and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So when it comes to the second church, the suffering church, it says this, right to the angel church of Smyrna. Thus says the first and last, the one who was dead and came to life. See, they need to realize that, that he had conquered death. And on and on and on, we can go through all these churches. It's part of his description is apply to that church need to understand that part about him. The fourth thing, all these letters say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. What Jesus does, he takes these letters and has them sent to the pastors of the churches, who then gives them to the people. Some people are going to listen to that, and some are going to hear it, and it's going to go right over their head. They're, they're just, it's just going to just lost on them. Do you understand here, Jesus does not bypass his way of operating when it comes to his church. He has put people with different gifts in the church and different things to do. And the pastor's job is to take God's word and give it to the people. But guess what? The pastor, he probably can't tap dance. He probably couldn't organize a garage sale. There's a lot of things he can't, but there's one thing that he's supposed to do. And some people, because the, the pastor doesn't come with a, halo around his head, that they're going to say, well, well, why should I listen to him? And so some people, they may not, the pastor gives, the, here's the words of God to you and goes right over their head. So he says, he who has an ear, and in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this whole parable about the sower and the seeds, and it's those who hear, those who hear, those who hear. It's all about hearing. The fifth thing, it's crucial to realize what's most important. That's what we see in all these letters. See, in each letter, Jesus points out one thing. He centers on one thing that either the church is doing well, but that's not for a lot of churches. But most of the time, he points out the one thing that they're not doing well in. One thing. The churches have a lot of other good things going on, maybe, but they're missing this one thing. And the message of all these churches is, you may have all these good things, but you better center on what's most important. Don't miss the one thing that's more important. We see this happen in, in, all through Scripture. And Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Why? Because Saul had decided, look, I may not obey the Lord, but I'm going to be a great sacrificer. And Samuel says, oh, sacrificing is good, Saul. But you left what's better. What you need to focus on was obedience, not sacrifice. Here's another one. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. What's more important, worship or reconciliation? We could go throughout all Scripture about this. 
In Mark chapter 7, you have the, uh, these group of Pharisees that they're, they're keeping their money back and dedicating to God rather than honoring their parents. What's more important, unity or a gift? Using your gift. You better not make the mistake. People do it all the time about what's, what's more important. There was a 38-year-old man that was trying to cross the tri-state tollway in, in uh, Illinois to get to his warehouse for his job. He managed to cross the four lanes of northbound traffic, but as he's going to cross the four lanes of southbound traffic, his hat flew off. So he went after it. What had his attention? The hat. What should have had his attention? The semi-truck that ran over and killed him should have had his attention. Now, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one who's ever done this. I'm driving down the road, especially here in Alaska, and all of a sudden there's either a gnat or a mosquito on the window. And so what do you do? Then I'll, oh, also, you know, and then you realize I almost had a wreck. I almost ran off the road. I almost hit that car. Whatever. That would have been thousands of dollars of damage to my vehicle, other vehicles, maybe medical bills, which is tens of thousands of dollars. All that over mosquito. But that's what we do. We lose focus of what's most important. And it's so easy to do. So. What Jesus is telling us is the seven things that are really important that you'd better have as his church. Okay? The first one is Ephesus. Ephesus is probably the most excavated city in antiquity. We know that there are about 250,000 people living in Ephesus. And in that day, that was a huge metropolis. 250,000 people was huge. The Greek god of Artemis, his temple was there. And this temple was so massive, it was one of seven wonders of the world at that time. This is where people went to go on vacation. Instead of going to Disney World like we do today, they went to Artemis, to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. They made a lot of idols to this Greek god Artemis. In fact, they were everywhere in the city. They made idols to hang around your neck, little idols of, of Artemis. They had them to go put in your home. They had them to put on the front of your chariot, just everywhere. And if you remember in Acts, whenever Paul came to Ephesus and preached the gospel, so many people became Christians that the idol market, their sales fell off, and it caused a riot. Paul began the church at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla taught there. Apollos taught there. Timothy pastored there. And tradition says that John, later on in his life, took Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus. Can you imagine having Mary in your church? Hi, I'm Al. I'm a greeter here at First Baptist Ephesus. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm the mother of your Savior. And what... <laughs> If you would have gone to their website and clicked on their ministry page, you'd been blown away. Wow, what a great church. Look at all they're doing. Go on their beliefs page. Wow, 
what a doctrinally sound church. You'd have been real impressed at their website. And this is what we read. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor. Hey, these people were working. They knew that they were Christians. Sometimes you put labor out in the church. You, you, it requires, it's, it's good to give your, your sweat, your, your, your work to the, to the ministry. That's what they were doing. And your endurance, they hung in there. They persevered. When things got tough, they didn't just turn and run. They hung in there. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. They didn't tolerate false doctrine. You go back in Acts, and you see as Paul is leaving the church of Ephesus, he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to be arrested and, and, and be thrown in jail and all that. He tells the leaders of the church of Ephesus, he said, look, in just a little while, some, some, some wolves in sheep's clothing are going to come, and they're going to try and lead you astray with their doctrine. Don't let them do it. And they did come, and they didn't let them do it. Okay. Not only that, uh, in verse 6 it says, Yet you do have this. You, have you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We can't say for sure dogmatically, dogmatically who the Nicolaitans were, but we know from later on, verses 14 and 15 uh, of, of this same chapter, that they were, you put all that stuff together, they were leading people astray through their immorality. So there wasn't any truth is relative at the church of Ephesus. There wasn't any, let's some ordain some homosexuals, the sin that God hates, let's put them in charge of our church. There was none of that going on. Okay? And then it says this, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. They were okay with suffering. They understood that was part of being a Christian. They were following a guy who died on a cross. Of course they're going to suffer. They were okay with that. So there's a lot of good things happening at Ephesus. But this one thing, this one thing, verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Do you realize you can be outwardly committed to the things of God but lose your passion for God? Do you realize that? You would never say, God, I'm going to sing for you. God, I'm going to work in the church for you. God, I'm going to do this mystery for you, but I just won't love you. You wouldn't say that, but God knows whether it's true or not. So here's what I want you to grasp. We often think, but four out of five is not so bad. Look at all the good things going on. Just one thing, just one area where they're lacking at. But here's what God says next. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. As far as God is concerned, this one thing, although they had all these other good things, this one thing is, is a fatal flaw. It's like you go into the doctor and he says, okay, your heart's good, your eyes are good, your lungs are good, your, your nerves are good. Uh, you do have a, 
uh, a tumor on your brain. But why don't you come back in about six months and we'll do the colonoscopy and make sure all that stuff's good too. No, the tumor is a fatal flaw. You have to address that. See, what, what this passage is, is, is forcing us to do is to make us ask the question, do we value the presence of God in our life? Do we desire to be with Him, to love Him? Here's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us or constrains us or motivates us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. That desire to be with Him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Some, some people, they get exhausted because they're doing all these things in order to get God's approval and what they don't realize that they just desperately need just to be in His presence, just to have a passion for Him. So, if you continue to live without a passion for Christ, it's not because you couldn't change, but because you could have changed, but refused. See, the good news is you can change this around. That's what he says. Back to verse 5 again. Remember then how far you have fallen. First of all, remember. Remember when you just wanted to be with him. Remember because you're aware of God's forgiveness, you just shown your love for him and thanked him and, and just wanted to be in his presence. Do you remember that? Back in Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to Simon's house, gets invited over there. He goes, Simon doesn't give him a little kiss on the cheek. He doesn't wash his feet, doesn't do any of these, these common courtesies during that time. And then this woman comes in who doesn't necessarily have a good reputation and with her tears, she washes her feet. With her hair, she dries them. And Simon's kind of put off by this. But Jesus says, let me, let me tell you a little parable, Simon. And he tells him how he has this one guy who loans one guy $50 and the other $500. And he says, the guy forgave them both. Which do you think loved him the most? And Simon says, well, the one who, who owed the $500. Jesus says, you're right. In other words, this woman realizes how much she's been forgiven. That's why her love for me is overflowing. Remember what God has done for you. Remember how he's forgiven you all your sins. Let that drive you to seek him, drive you to love him more and more. So the first thing he says is to remember. The second thing he says to do is to repent. You must admit that the lack of a passion, of a love for Jesus is a sin. You need to hear that. You must be able to admit that. If it wasn't a sin, he would have said repent. And you're not going to get rid of that sin until you hate it. You're not going to get rid of any sin until you hate it. We need to stop and let that sink in. That a lack of love for our Savior is a sin. And the third thing he says is, is, to, is to redo. Uh, in other words, do the deeds you did at first. Put away the, the bitterness, ang anger. Everything that, that stops and causing your love to grow cold, get rid of that and just walk with him like Adam did in the garden. Just seek after him like David says, like a deer pants full of water. Just long to be in his presence. 
And then, let's go on to verse 7. Jesus says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now here, when he says, let everyone who hears, if he has ears to hear, let, let him listen, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. What he's done, it doesn't come across in our English version so much, but he, he stopped talking to the church as a whole, and he starts talking to individuals. saying, if you, if you, in other words, you catch us as an individual. I told you what, what the church needs to do, but as an individual, you need to listen. You, you need to catch this. See, on the final exam, the first question is not, can you tell me all the things you've done? The first question is, can you tell me how much you loved? How much did you love Jesus? That's what's going on here at, at this church is this lack of love. They lost their first love. See, our biggest problem is that we don't see a lack of love as our biggest problem. That was their problem. The fact is, it's a whole lot easier to do ministry than it is sometimes to, to stay in love with Jesus, isn't it? See, before you have a church to go to, before you have a prayer to pray, before you have a Bible to open, you have a Savior to be loved. And you don't want to get to the end of your life with regrets because you did all this stuff, but you didn't have a love for Him. You didn't have a passion for Him. This is what we're called to overcome, to be an overcomer. Not let this stay there any longer. And what he says, it's not that you can't change. You could change at any time, but you just didn't want to change. So this is what Jesus expects of our church. Number one, that we love him. We have a passion for him, that we long to be with him. And if that's not there, don't look at your life and go, oh, but look at all the other things I do. Because that's a fatal flaw. When that's not there, we become a faithless, disobedient church. That as far as Jesus is concerned, is ready to disappear. Mm. So, what about you? Do you have ears to hear that this morning? Has that something just kind of gone over your head or are you letting it sink in your heart? Because I'm telling you, I don't know where all of you are at, but there's someone in the house who does. Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. As part of this church, he knows exactly where you're at. And if that's an issue in your life, become an overcomer, become a conqueror. Say, not anymore. Not anymore. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.